Welcome back to another fun-packed episode of Private Practice Podcast. I'm Daniel P. Brown. In the London Private Practice Studio. And I'm James Hall in the Private Practice Studio in Casablanca, Morocco, Africa. Fantastic. International podcast. Small talk, small talk. Small talk. What have you been up to, James? Pretty much nothing. Cool. Over to you. It's your turn in the small talk. <laughs> I mean, just I'm not being facetious. It's not like um, it's not like there are things to do in Casablanca that would constitute interest. Like, it's, it's, I'm not going to say. I've just done all the things that I would have done in London, such as, oh, I just saw that new play at the National Theatre. Isn't it great now that lockdown has ended? And then there was this big party the other night. It was so nice to see all those people after such a long time. And then I had to do various bits of things. In fact, I went shopping the other day, and you'll never guess who I bumped into because I was in London and I bump into people in London. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. I'm in Casablanca where I didn't go to the theatre, didn't go to the museum, didn't go shopping, didn't meet anyone, didn't bump into anyone, didn't have anything especially to do that was different to any other weekend what else did I not do well not meeting anyone meant not doing anything where you would meet someone to do it so that's why I answered in that way to your question of what have I been up to however I could list all the things I did at the weekend because it's not like I just sat in a chair yeah you, you could have done that but you didn't um so it sounds like the life that you have in Casablanca is exactly what I'd like. Not going to the theatre, not bumping into anyone, not doing anything. That sounds absolutely perfect in a nice hot country. Maybe we should just swap every so often. You come to Casablanca and I go to... Mm. Over to you. Yeah. Next, in, in the small talk, it's your turn to speak. Or do I have to ask a question? <laughs> no. So I'm, uh, I'm stuck at home at the, at the moment, currently uh, off work, um, uh, recovering from an operation, actually, James. Uh, and uh, it's uh, interesting. It's like enforced nothingness. You just have to stay at home and, and not, not use your muscles too much. So uh, I'm kind of getting a bit bored of it. I've been home for about two and a half weeks now doing nothing. Although I did uh, pop to Ikea yesterday evening to buy some meatballs. So that was pretty exciting. I mean, I've said to you off-air appropriate things to do with your surgery. Um, I don't know that you want to say any more about your surgery, in which case I've got nothing else to add. I certainly have no interest in the meatballs and on the spot cannot think of a question to ask about that. So shall we finish the small talk or do you want to keep going just a little bit longer? No, I, th I think there's like loads of great, you know, moments there for anyone who wanted to listen to that small talk section. So I think you did brilliantly, James. Excellent. Am I getting better at small talk? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you're great at it now. We are in the final stretch of our top ten cognitive distortions, and I think we may have done 
two number fives. So oh. in at number nine might be actually in at number 10. And then when I went to the positive psychology website, I counted more than 10 anyway. So we've been telling people that there are 10 and I think there are more than 10. Now, I can't remember. Do you remember which which we actually got to, what, what we finished chatting about last week? Uh... <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you... Oh, that's great news. Um, <laughs> this is like a regional TV show where you knew <laughs> that I knew and you were just passing to me in a kind of clunky yeah. way, but semi-professional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't find my uh, I can't find my list, James. This isn't even semi-professional. Um, um, well, the next one is labelling. So maybe you could just type labelling Wikipedia. <laughs> Like, like you do in your paid-for private practice when you're incredibly wealthy and traumatised subjects come to you in dire need of help and they pay you vast amounts of money for you to do yeah. some last-minute Wikipedia search <laughs> terming in front of them, pretending uh, that you're actually a wise, sage, old student of the great masters of psychotherapy. I mean, I think labelling is a pretty common term that we use. It's something that's entered the language, um, you know, our, our you know, common tongue. Every, everyone uses labelling. We understand what it is. In essence, it's, um, it, it, it's a way of describing and generalising something by saying, you know, um, you, maybe you get something wrong or you make a mistake, so you say you are an idiot or perhaps you don't achieve what you want to achieve, so you are a loser. But then you kind of roll with that label. It's something that sort of sticks with you or someone else. Of course, you can see someone else's mistakes and, uh, you know, attribute a label to them like, um, you know, they're, they're a problem, they're, a, they're an idiot, they're a, they're a fool. And you, you hold on to that. You, you, you don't see that people, you know, have different character traits. It's, it's something that you label as this is an overwhelming, primary, specific that sticks to either yourself or another person. And it doesn't allow for any kind of nuances or changes in character. It's, 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 you know, it's again part of the black and white thinking. James is annoying because he can be annoying. So rather than saying that James occasionally is annoying or James sometimes behaves in a way that's annoying, James is annoying. And you hold on to that. It's concrete. It's fixed. There you go. That's labelling. I was thinking with all of these that we haven't really said specifically, but if we look back at our episode where we compared cognitive behavioural therapy with Freudian psychoanalysis, uh, which is probably the most extreme comparison you can make in the field of therapy and mental health, because there are other forms of therapy. And since that episode, we've spent a lot of time looking at Carl Rogers and he's not a, exactly a psychoanalyst. He's a therapist. He doesn't sit in his office with, when someone comes in and they, uh, they describe the affair that they're having. And he quietly looks them over as his grand mind's cogs turn and he analyzes the, what must be going on in their psyche and then delivers his verdict in the way that people imagine Freud used to do. He had um, a formula for 
a therapeutic process that he would do with the person. He called it person-centered therapy, which is um, which is not cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's also not exactly... I mean, I, in that sense, I would say that Freud has more in common with CBT because it's kind of... You ask questions and you analyse the data. And so, therefore, we're looking at a more rational approach. No, 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 we're not looking at a more rational approach. We're looking at the extreme of rationality. So someone comes in to, uh, with, with all these distortions and as a cognitive behavioural therapist, let me caricature it and then you can re-say it sensibly. Nothing new there. So I'm the cognitive behavioural therapist and someone comes in the room and I have all these questions and it's not the ridiculous uh, Hugo who's written these questions, it's someone sensible has written these questions and they're effective. But it's as if I'm looking at this person who is ridiculously distorted and I'm on a drive to rein that into the realms of rationality. So in other words, they've labelled people, they've labelled themselves, they've been thinking in a black and white way about everything, they've been doing all the things that we've been talking about, and I'm going through the information that they give me and I'm essentially analysing it and saying, well... Technically, you say everyone always thinks you're annoying, but how many people have reported that? When did they say it? Um, is, has anyone ever interacted with you and not said that you're annoying, etc.? So we're having a rational approach to break that down. But I think there's an extent to which rationality is extremely helpful beyond which it becomes excessive. Yeah, okay, okay. Like, if you're extremely rational about everything, you will reach kind of... Well, I'm just going to subjectively say, you'll reach sort of like psychology-denying conclusions. You'll have models of the world that are logical but don't really apply to the way human beings have evolved. And I think in lots of um, quite extreme political ideas like fascism and communism. Personally, I think I'm not a huge fan of Karl Marx. And so if I were to look at something like the Communist Manifesto, I personally would see it as too rational in the sense that it's perfectly logical and I'm not about to start picking holes in the logic but I simply don't believe that many of these ideas, when put into practice, are going to be anywhere near as beneficial as they seem like they will based purely on the logic. And so if I translate that to the therapy room, if I try and logic someone out of their problems and they completely see the way that they have been thinking with all these distortions and they eliminate that and they go out and live their life extremely logically I'm sure that will solve a lot of their problems but it will leave them with an incomplete picture of how to necessarily improve their relationships with people um yeah so if it was as simple as as that um I'd agree but it, what you need to remember is that the 
logicking of problems. Sorry, that's not great English. The the logical exploration of problems, like the testing out of the truth of a statement or a belief or a feeling, is a part of the process. Um, you don't go into a room. A therapist, you know, CBT therapist, sits down with you and go, "Okay, what are you thinking? That's illogical. Here we go. Off you go." Uh, I've proven you're. I've proven you're wrong. Get out. You're wrong. <laughs> Basically debunking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, truth testing. What's that? What's that phrase? Um, but um, but but what, there's also like a real important uh, what you'd call in in you know mental health profession like a, a psychoeducation. And in the psychoeducation component of any kind of therapy, uh, and this, I mean, perhaps with really strict sort of Freudian or analytical therapy, most therapists don't include that. They allow a person to come to conclusions themselves. But in a behavioural and cognitive therapy type setting and, and probably in more, you know, humanist approaches and integrative approaches, p- part of the conversation between you and the therapist is is about you know, what are the facts around feeling emotions, thinking thoughts? What are the facts around, you know, if you've got a diagnosis, depression or anxiety? What, what, what does it mean? What do we know about it? What is normal? How do people without a kind of um, recognised condition deal with emotions and feelings? When is it becoming a problem? And all of that those kind of things are called psychoeducation, where you're understanding about a disorder you might have or a distortion to your thinking and your feelings and 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 how you might deal with that normally. And then you look at the more extreme examples. So it's not just focusing absolutely solely on these ideas and thoughts that we hold that are distortive and problematic. It's also looking at... Um, and more normal thinking and things that we do well and things that are positive and things that are helpful and constructive. So I, I see what you're saying. You're absolutely right. You know, you can't just say to someone, <laughs> look at all these distorted thoughts that you have. Stop that. Now go and live normally. It, 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 it isn't that, you know, because also on top of cognitive distortions, everyone has real problems. You know, everyone has um difficulty in communicating certain thoughts ideas feelings worries um and positive messages um with the people who they love and the people who are around them and their colleagues we all have that that doesn't mean that we are mentally ill or cognitively distorted there are thoughts and feelings and concerns and anxieties that go with all of this in a normal healthy human being just because we have cognitive distortions just because we have um uh what would you call it maybe short shortfalls or, or in how we communicate that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us it just means that we need to kind of strengthen those practical ways that we learn to communicate thoughts feelings ideas emotions worries and positives but it's always not that's not a problem for everyone of course um does does that make sense does that answer your question um i think so did you want to review or or rephrase what you were saying to me because maybe i misunderstood or misinterpreted maybe i only heard what i wanted to hear well i don't think that i have a specific as in i don't think i've drawn my conclusion and i'm just presenting it i think i'm highlighting an area where there is no, where I don't think there's a conclusion to be drawn. Like, um, if if you're too rational 
uh, and logical in your life, you will then potentially create new problems from that because you're interacting. You're, you are a, a a biological organism interacting with other biological organisms, and so the only way for you to be solving all your problems purely with logic is in a totally logical universe where you know what the rules are for everything. And the only things that we know for sure are things that we think are at present scientifically sound. So, like, with gravity... Gravity is always, I think, the easiest example. If I drop my papaya onto this marble floor, it will land hard, it will bruise, it will probably make a mess on the floor, I probably won't want to eat it, etc. I can make that prediction because of um, certain laws. But when it comes to interacting with other people, you can't just learn logic in order to solve all your problems if you have a breakdown of communication with someone. And I don't think... So, for example, with Carl Rogers' therapy, it wasn't an exercise in logging... Logicking. <laughs> How many ways can we wrongly conjugate logic today? It wasn't an exercise in logicking your way out of breakdowns in communication, either between your conscious and unconscious mind or between yourself and another person. And equally, though, if you are not rational and logical enough, then the whole world of superstition, conspiracy, cognitive distortion, paranoia, all these things open up to causing huge problems. So I think there's an imbalance in the sense that not being logical I think there's a much bigger and deeper well of problems coming for you if you go down that path. Being too logical, I don't know the extent of the problems, as in I can't conceptualise. Like, if you are um, a, an extremely logical person, like one of those sort of like new... Uh, one of the Richard Dawkins-type people, I don't know how many problems Richard Dawkins creates for himself by being too logical. Yeah, okay. Um, Let me give that point, but in a more simplified yet silly way. Um, uh, if the listener takes from this that the way to solve all their problems is extreme logic, as if cognitive distortions are cockroaches and the way to solve the problem is to spray all the cockroaches uh, with um, a, a, an extreme logical understanding of their distortions... Are they going to be left coughing and spluttering and going into hospital with cockroach killer fumes in their lungs? <laughs> I see. And you think that people like Richard Dawkins are so logical that everything they do can, in essence, cause more problems because they've taken out some of the humanity of the communication around things? Yes, except on the, when you say it, it, it sounds silly. Like, it sounds like really could can being too logical be as severe a problem as becoming clinically depressed and having a serious mental disorder because you've gone down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and cognitive distortions and you've alienated yourself from society to the point where you're deep in the worst possible well of mental unhealth 
and I'm comparing that with someone like Richard Dawkins, who's just a little bit too rational. It, it seems wildly asymmetrical. Yes, in essence, what you're saying is right. And you, you might consider that some people who are on the um, you know, autistic spectrum, you know, who are high-functioning autism, like you know, that used to be called Asperger's, but apparently we don't use that term anymore, might suffer with that because actually the um, ability to kind of incorporate emotional reasoning and understand people's emotional states when they're communicating is really can be really limited. And because of that, the logic that they see for the situation can come across as cold or harsh or unthinking or unfeeling or uncaring. But actually, potentially, it's highly logical, but it's removing a lot of that human component, and that can cause lots of problems in relationships for people who are on the autistic spectrum. I think that's fair to say. Um, and I think that that's what you're saying, is like if someone can become so logical and so matter-of-fact and so almost black and white about things that something either is or is not, that they won't see nuances, that they won't see shades of grey, they won't take into consideration people's feelings when they're communicating or the context, but actually just look at, these are the facts, so this is the outcome. And... I think you can, you know, see that quite traditionally in the way that we've traditionally, but perhaps not so much nowadays, separated sort of like that idea of a male and a female brain, which I don't particularly, well, I don't agree with at all, but that kind of emotional brain and that rational brain, when actually the idea in therapy is to kind of incorporate the two, the understanding of having emotions and feelings and context and a creativity and an imagination and and uh, a personal choice about how to consider and feel things, as well as understanding that there, you know, are some, there is some logic and there is some, there are some facts that you can use and there is some uh, thinking styles and techniques that you can use to kind of weigh up pros and cons and, and come to something that is closer to, you know, a, a sort of a truth. Um, but especially if it's helping you to live a happier and healthier life with improved relationships. So I see what you're saying, but in therapy, you're looking to incorporate both sides, not just, right, teach them logic and that's it, they'll be f fine, you know, teach them logic. That isn't what this is about. And the other thing that you're not pointing out um, or not focusing on is that, you know, good therapy enables us to live with uncertainty as well. So challenging thoughts that might be extreme i am selfish i am a loser i am useless people hate me and helping someone use logic to get to the point where they go some people hate me but that's okay and some people like me people i don't even know might like me there are some people who really love me and i'm not even considering them when i say people hate me i am selfish no one wants to be my friend so finding the the shades of grey in between, but also living with the idea that you don't know what people think unless you ask them. But even then, you don't know whether that person's being completely honest or feels that they can tell you the truth. So living with uncertainty, not holding distorted thoughts as fact, allowing the fact that there's a possibility that they might be true, but there's also a wealth of evidence to suggest that... It might not be true. So it isn't just about going, 
That thought's wrong. This is a better thought. Replace it with that. Off you go. Well, Problem actually, solved. now you say it like that, I wonder if it's because I've kind of probably presented this as if um, if you choose to have some kind of therapy, you've basically got a choice between reclining on the couch and uh, spending 10 years discussing your feelings versus... That's in the in the red corner versus in the blue corner, cognitive behavioural therapy, which could potentially even be done with a robot who just outputs questions, you input your data, the robot processes with extreme logic because it's not hindered by silly human brain. And I'm talking about uh, a, a wonderful alien robot that comes from above, not a, not a silly flawed robot that's been designed by a bad human. So this is a perfect robot that is um, uh, that has godlike logic, solves all of your cognitive distortions, and sends you away with a, a rational script on how you can live your life without falling back into the same problems that brought you here in the first place. As if it's so, maybe I've, I'm demonstrating my own black and white thinking here, as if it's so extreme. But I can imagine if you go into therapy and you have a therapist and whether they are a lover of Carl Rogers and Maslow and the other humanists or whether they are a Jungian analyst or they are mostly influenced by Melanie Klein and Lacan and Freud and they don't necessarily hold Carl Rogers on the pedestal that I uh, have demonstrated in the past on this podcast but I can imagine them being aware of the these distortions and if they sense that a a client is too irrational they might no matter what school of therapy they come from no matter what they believe they might steer them slightly into a um, an addressing of their distortions and effectively they might kind of do a form of CBT just without formal questions through conversation whereas if you go into CBT you specifically have a course of CBT what happens if you're actually a little bit autistic and what you need is a conversation with someone to put the world into context as opposed to an analysis of your interpretation of things that have happened but but that is what therapy is like therapy it looks at the individual and the therapist is meant to um help them find the right way of communicating these ideas for the individual it isn't although the the techniques are sort of one size fits all you know cbt has a set of techniques has a toolbox of ideas and processes um that doesn't mean that exactly the same processes and ideas will work for everyone so the therapist's job is partially to tailor that therapy for the individual Um, and, and i think you're right i think you are being quite black and white yourself about how you are interpreting this perhaps yeah i think so i'm but i'm sure I'm, i'm wondering if it's basically just for someone who is a little bit too rational who has various problems they shouldn't just be uh ticking boxes to uh correct for distortions and going out with a a mindset of how to logic their way out of problems and similarly 
for someone who goes into therapy where they're reclining on the couch and they're, kind of, they're the kind of person who believes in conspiracies and superstitions. They, they have an echo chamber in their social media feed and they think the world has distorted its way out of their comprehension and they can't interact with people anymore. So they finally go into therapy and they're seriously missing a lot of logic if the therapist would, I suppose this would be a bad therapist, if the therapist just says, you know, tell me about your feelings, as if, in other words, indulge yourself, and this is a sp safe space where I will simply listen to you, is that the best way to treat that patient? I, I guess it's down to the therapist to know. Wait, well, I thought you finished halfway through a sentence there, but you didn't. Yeah, it is down to the therapist to know, and obviously not you know, therapy, it is a process. So it may well take a number of sessions of getting to know a person who's in therapy before you can find exactly what's right for them. And and for some people, it will take a number of therapists to do that. Um, because, you know, like, like we, we um, put professionals, you know, teachers, doctors, therapists, um, police we put them on sort of pedestals like as if they know everything about their topic as if, as if they would be able to um, work magic in every single circumstance that is presented to them and that's just not the case you know sometimes it takes um you know trial and error work to find what is right for a person both from the therapist's perspective but also from the person seeking support um but yeah, no, no, you know, these cognitive distortions are just one set of ideas within one therapy produced by a few trailblazers in the 60s and 70s that, that has worked for a lot of people. Um, and, and I think that the cognitive distortions are, are really logical, but also looking at your own cognitive distortions and trying to understand how they affect your life um, is not the be all and end all of therapy, whether it's CBT or anything else. Okay, I just thought that before we moved on from them, um, it would be good to to question the idea of just applying logic to undistort your cognitive distortions, as if that's the simple key to solving your problems and living a happy life. <laughs> no, and I don't, and I don't think anyone's you know really sold it as such. I think maybe if you read David Byrne's book, um, the Feeling Good Handbook and you work your way through the 800 pages or whatever it is, you, you probably will discover during that process, and, and you do it, you know, in um, air quotes properly, you know, you really do give it the time that it deserves and you really work through the kind of um, cognitive distortion worksheets. And, for example, you keep a... Uh, feelings diary and, and a, or a mood diary and you you rate yourself and you think about you know how things that you're thinking affect your emotions and your your sense of self if you work through all of that the 800 pages or whatever it is you'll probably get to the end of it and be well or sorry way more aware of what things are getting in the way of you being happy and which specific topics and and how how different thought patterns can really affect you but it wouldn't necessarily take away some of the more ingrained you know core beliefs you have about yourself but it might highlight what they are and and how they're causing you um discomfort misery anxiety uh, stress and 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 how it affects your mood However, if you take all of that knowledge into a kind of a more conversational therapy or more analytical therapy, you may well be much better placed to get 
to the root and the core of what you're calling problems um and and and, and it's a very useful process um but also the, the the idea and i think we've said this in other in other episodes and series that we've recorded is that actually you know, human beings are continually growing they're not fixed they, they they're not you know unless unless you really try and remain in a bubble and not change we 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 don't stagnate really we are forever growing and learning and evolving and changing so therefore our problems or the way that we deal with them also will it's not you get from point a to point b and you're fixed that you know and and also lots of therapists would suggest that you don't need to fix people you're just giving people tools in order to help them live more happily successfully comfortably creatively um constructively in the world that we live in which is like saturated with challenges so going into therapy is not i have problems let's get rid of my problems and then everything's better that's not what it's about however if you've got so many problems that you aren't able to manage or you can't think about how to manage a course of therapy might enable you you know lift you up enough to think, oh, I can deal with the shit that life is throwing at me, and these are some of the techniques I'm going to use for now. Okay, yeah, I think that's well put. Um, so there was a moment when it was appropriate for me to respond to what you said about labelling, and I didn't. I talked about all this stuff. <laughs> so- <laughs> yeah, I think that was about thirty minutes ago. <laughs> um, I think I don't want to. Do, I don't want to give a, a great long uh, monologue about labeling i just think that for example um sometimes i am clearly very extroverted other times i'm clearly very introverted that's a good example where being extroverted i might be quite silly being introverted i might be maybe a little bit too serious sometimes and it's possible for someone to uh, become familiar with one of those before the other one and label me as such and then never change their picture of me when I am the opposite. So like if I'm if someone becomes familiar with me as being extroverted and silly and making everything into a joke, if I'm then sat down quietly, probably taking things a little bit too seriously, it's difficult for them to see that. And I understand that, but I've also, I think over the time, thought that it was maybe too much of my mistake like oh I shouldn't I shouldn't almost some some black and white thinking in response to that I should I'm never going to tell another joke I get myself into these situations where I'm I get carried away I make things into a joke I make things stupid and then I pay the price later on when people just see me as a clown and can't treat me in any other way or vice versa um I've uh, uh, I might think to myself I need to make an effort to be more extroverted in social situations because otherwise people will just dismiss me as the boring person in the corner. And then when I do make an effort, it's too late. They've already decided that I don't participate. Um, And as, as if it's entirely on me. But I certainly wouldn't completely reverse that. I certainly wouldn't sit there saying, it's all of your problem and I've done nothing wrong. I'm great. Why should I change who I am? You can just get used to me because uh, I'm fabulous. I do take some responsibility for, especially like occasionally making, taking things too far with jokes. But, um, but if I do get 
in the mood for making things silly and making things into jokes and having fun and someone just labels me as that for the rest of my life then um it's not it's not entirely my fault for being too stupid and I should never make a joke again I think and that's that's my reaction to labeling <laughs> excellent yeah yeah no absolutely it, 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 like we've said before in this series there's a there's a lot of overlap with these things and i just found something that was quite interesting i've not heard this before so i can't talk in massive detail um but on the rebtinfo.com uh website which i think is a really crappy name and it's a pretty tacky website too but it's got loads of good information in it and there was a dr ellis who managed to reduce these uh, irrational beliefs which is is what we call them as a kind of like a big cloud that they all fit into call them the big four so you'll like this james i don't know whether you've read this <laughs> is there going to be eight of them <laughs> no th- there is simply four of them so the big four so it's kind of like um uh, putting them all into like a much broader categories because we're seeing there's loads of overlap and he called them the big four demanding uh, irrational beliefs awfulizing which is definitely has to be an american word um and then three low frustration tolerance and four people rating so like these are the ideas that perhaps he thinks are most important and then the different cognitive distortions fall into these demanding awfulizing low frustration tolerance and people rating so perhaps at some point if you know if anyone was interested go to the reb tinfo r-e-b-t-i-n-f-o.com cognitive distortions page um and there's a little bit more there to read about that kind of idea but there's so much overlap with these um uh, so yeah, obviously with labelling, you know, you can also they also say labelling and mislabelling. So, so the idea, you know, it seems to me that labelling is mislabelling because people change. You know, our personalities and the way we behave is actually quite fluid, and also can be contextual. Could also be emotional based. Also, depending on whether you're, you know, in sickness or in health, the way that we behave and the way that we react is completely different even just depending on how much we've had to eat that day and how hungry we are is, you know, uh, how our behaviour will change. Um, yes, yeah, so that, I don't know, are, we, are you ready to move on to number 11 of the top 10? <laughs> yeah, in at number 10 is number 11, personalisation. <laughs> yeah, OK. Uh, so um, go, we're going from the positivepsychology.com definitions here. So I'm just going to read this one out. Um, Again, this is all from like um, Aaron Beck and David Burns. So Beck was in the 70s working on Burns. I think worked with him, but then uh, carried on the work into the 1980s. So as the name implies with personalisation, the distortion involves taking everything personally or assigning blame to yourself without logical reason to believe you are to blame. The distortion covers a wide range of situations from assuming you are the reason a friend did not enjoy the girls' night out to the more severe examples of believing that you are the cause for every instance of moodiness or irritation in those around you. And I think that this one is actually way more common than we think. I I think people, as a kind of a default lower mood, think that when we notice that our partner is irritable or we notice that our partner seems angry or we notice that you know someone around us is not in a good mood we think what have I done wrong and we don't even necessarily say oh I am the cause of this I am the problem here my behavior but we we just kind of 
almost automatically instinctively think that it's something that we've done there's a feeling around oh no I've done something wrong and we don't even necessarily use any kind of logic to analyze whether it's us uh personalization what have you got to say about that I'll give you you can have 27 minutes on this one rather than the full 30 <laughs> no I'm not going to give a monologue because uh I think there are more interesting things to talk about but as sorry no there aren't it's not that there are more interesting things to talk about. It's just that what you just said is kind of what I think. Do you remember when we used to joke about someone saying to you, not everything is always all about you, Dan Brown? Yep. And I, I guess I found that quite funny at the time, but it's only been since that I've ever thought about the idea that someone thinks everything is all about them. Up until that point, it didn't really register to me that someone would do that. Do people take situations and think that all of the situation is always all about them? I don't know whether I would have even thought that people do that. So therefore, I could have been blind to other people doing it and definitely blind to myself doing it. And it was only because we turned it into a joke that I was looking out for situations where you um, maybe took something that had uh, m- multiple causes and was highly contextual and um, you reacted in a way that made it seem like it, it, it uniquely impacted you. And um, so then I would, I would be thrilled that I could make the joke that not everything is always about you. But in the process of making the joke, I actually learnt that... Um, I would have completely bypassed me. I wouldn't have noticed if it wasn't for the joke. Okay, that's interesting. So let's backtrack slightly. So there there was a story behind this as well. So um, the reason why between us the joke became quite um, common was because when we first met, you were over at my house, I think for a couple of days, and my housemate came in um, and was really unwell. And... (laughs) I had, you know, you you over and we were probably watching some crap on the television. And I sort of, you know, this is mid-twenties, I'm guessing. I'm hoping it might be later. Mid to late twenties. And even though my housemate was ill, I didn't say, oh, right, well, we'll go out, we'll go somewhere else. I just sat on the sofa. And anyway, I had an argument with my lovely housemate, Emma. And she said to me, listen, Daniel Brown, not everything is always about you. And I wrote it on a piece of paper, sort of snidely, you know, like sort of thinking she's probably right. I am an incredibly selfish human being. And um, in the moment, I didn't do anything about it, but I did write it on a piece of paper. um, And I think then we used that, Emma and myself, as a bit of a joke. She would write, not everything's always about you on a bit of paper and leave it in the kitchen or something, something along those lines. But this... This the idea hit me then in my late 20s that actually, although we don't consciously, we're not consciously aware that we're thinking or relating everything to us as an individual, you know, kind of almost egocentric, self-centred, um, thinking about how whatever has just been said to you affects you. Um, and a good example of this is when people are having a conversation and you may not notice this of yourself in the moment when you're talking to someone, but you can almost always notice it when two other people are having a conversation. 
person A starts talking about something that's happened to them and person B, before person A has finished talking, goes, oh, yes, 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 and gives their version of why that situation, that experience, that feeling, that whatever it is, either is similar to something they've had or is not quite as good as something they have or not quite as terrible as something they've had. You know, there's a, there's a oh, and me, and me. And, and you can see this in conversations between two people. Often younger people are probably um, less conscious of doing this, but, but people do it. It's, it's a natural reaction. And that is partially wanting to relate to someone else, but it's also partially about making everything about you, everything about me. So when Emma said to me, Daniel Brown, not everything is always all about you. It took me some time, but I'm very glad I wrote it on that piece of paper. And that piece of paper I still have on my pin board upstairs. And I think you've seen it a few times when you've come over and think it's hilarious. Um, but that helped me try and catch that experience that we all have, whereby rather than thinking of ourselves as a kind of a another person in other people's life stories another person that 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 person a or b can talk to we make the conversation we make the experience we make the evening out or the holiday or the the day or the conversation about us even if we're not highly conscious of it and i think i think that's something that is really important to notice as well and i think what we're about to talk about which is fallacies and um, uh, cognitive bias. I think that really fits into this. It's this 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 silent, unconscious thing that we do that takes away from the way that we actually connect and communicate with people. So maybe it's time now to unleash the phallus and insert it into the conversation. Yep. I, I assume fallacies is the plural of phallus. <laughs> I actually don't know, James. I mean, <laughs> is is there any link? Is, there any, is it entomologically ent- etymologically connected? Yeah, is it? It will surprise you to hear that this is not a joke that I had rehearsed, and this is not something I'd planned to say, and I didn't write it in my notes. Make the joke about pretending that fallacies are actually talking about penises. So unfortunately, I haven't done any research into the uh, origins of the word fallacy. So, I mean, it's spelt differently to begin with. Phallic is P-H-A-L-L-I-C. And phallus... (laughs) (laughs) This is great. Oh... A phallus is a penis, object that resembles a penis, or a mimetic image of an erect penis in art history. A figure with an erect penis is described as ithphalic. Ithyphalic. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Uh, okay, control fallacies. Um, again, this is on positivepsychology.com. I've never seen these linked before, but apparently um, Aaron Beck and David Burns did further work after the cognitive distortions and talked about these kind of... Um, overarching ideas that actually are also part of the cognitive distortion tree control fallacies fallacy of fairness fallacy of change and always being right so um 
control fallacies. And I think this is one that this is actually can be quite frightening to speak about. And I think that these are bigger. These are quite quite a lot bigger, and they're more like the core beliefs. Um, but control fallacies. Um, one of two beliefs. One that we have no control over our lives and are helpless victims of fate. Or two, that we are in complete control of ourselves and our surroundings, giving us the responsibility too for the feelings of those around us. And that we should pull our socks up and flow. <laughs> that we should pull our socks up and flow. Yeah, so obviously no one's in complete control of what happens around them. And no one has absolutely no control over their situation. And that's even in extreme situations. Like the thing that instantly pops to mind is listening to people like uh, Terry Waite, who was a hostage in, I don't know, the Lebanon, let's say, for a long, long time, and how he used his mind to survive, basically, and how he had control over what his thoughts were and how he uh, managed to control the way that he interacted with his um, his kidnappers. Um, so even in extreme situations, and also Viktor Frankl's book... Um, uh come on james help me out with that it's called something about the meaning of life um gone completely blank uh, but but the the man's search of, for meaning man's search for meaning that's it um you know even being in a concentration camp he found different ways that he could bring control into his life and a feeling of purpose and a feeling of being so what have you got to say about the uh, uh control fallacies then well i think we brought up victor frankl before I've only read this, uh, a, a summary of that book. I've never read the, the actual book in full. But this is the drum that I'm always banging, that no matter what the situation you find yourself in, there is an extent to which you can not necessarily pull your socks up and flow in the same way that you can... For example, if you're in a job that's mildly irritating and it's not exactly an ideal job, you're kind of a bit of a cog in a machine and left to nature so to speak you would just degenerate to the point where the benefits of that job i.e the pitiful salary really don't compensate for what it sucks out of you in that situation as we saw in the flow book there is a little bit of wiggle room for you to be able to do something to improve that situation and that's not to say that you should just accept it like maybe you should look for another job or maybe uh, you should uh, try and get the other workers on side to present a case that working conditions are not good enough or join a union or whatever it is um, I'm not I, I think that when I say you should pull your socks up and flow and not just let yourself um, be swept into an unfortunate circumstance where your life is rubbish I'm not dismissing the external. I'm just making sure that the individual in this context doesn't dismiss the internal. So maybe your employer is terrible. Maybe you should be represented by a union and you're not. Maybe your other employees feel the same way and you just haven't got together and worked out how to articulate that. Maybe all of these external things. But at the same time, if you just think that you're, you are in a situation where everything is determined by your unfortunate external constraints, then you are dismissing the possibility of what you can do internally to create your life as opposed to react to the world. 
Uh, and so, yes, you can, to some extent, in that situation, pull your socks up and flow. There are, I think there are basic needs that have to be met. If you're starving and all, a whole num- manner of other things, I guess in the concentration camps and in the, in the gulags of communist uh, Soviet Russia, it, it was pretty extreme. It's unimaginable for someone like me. And therefore, when you hear from Alexander, when you hear Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl describing how they managed to find a, a locus of control internally in those extremely hostile situations, firstly, it's kind of reassuring that most of us aren't in anywhere near as dire a situation as them and therefore it would be ridiculous for someone like me to think that I'm a helpless victim of society and there's nothing I can do to improve my situation when it's documented that it's possible to do so in a concentration camp or a gulag but I but at the same time I think it must have the, 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 those two must have been quite extraordinary characters I don't know what was special about their backgrounds and their personality types that made it so that they could find a way of optimising their terrible situation in a way that maybe someone else couldn't. Because essentially the book is kind of like a description of, of, a, of an observation of not just themselves, but mainly other people in those situations and comparing the ones who died and the ones who survived and the ones who died are essentially, in short, the ones who put their hands up and gave up. Um, But my question essentially is, the ones who basically put their hands up and gave up and felt like they were victims to a hostile situation that had no way out... Could they have Victor Frankl their way to self-actualization in a concentration camp? Well, what is it about Victor Frankl and the ones who didn't give up? Um, what is it that they had? What quality of their mind got them through it? And is that something that was missing in the other people or is it something that was overlooked? Because if it was something that was overlooked, then the other people had untapped potential to survive. If it was something missing, then the other people... It's all very well for me to sit here and say, pull your socks up and flow, but they were not able to. But I I know that the the listener criticises me all the time for telling people to pull their socks up and flow, but if someone has the potential to do that, then using the, the, the S word, they probably should. But if they, I don't know if someone has the potential to do that or not. Can we all be Viktor Frankl? I mean, that is a fascinating question, and, and I don't think it's one that we have the uh, ability to answer today. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, that's really interesting. I think we probably did start to talk about that in flow, and I'm sure we had conversations around the idea that it... it it isn't that easy to just pull your socks up and flow, but it is obtainable. And there are steps that you can take in the direction of achieving flow, or that was a nice phrase that you used, um, you know, optimising your own experience, no matter how um, difficult the circumstances are. Um, So I don't know whether everyone can, you know, if you believe Michaly Chit, then Michaly, then 
potentially, yes, everyone can flow and it might just be different, you know, levels of flow, different experiences of flow, but everyone can do it um, and everyone has experienced it. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think that question is too big for today, James. I think most people, I, I mean, I don't know for sure. I'm just going to offer a potential answer. I think most people can flow in most life situations because most people are not living in extremely hostile situations and most people are not extremely neuroatypical. For those who are extremely neuroatypical, I've got no idea if they can flow. And if most people found themselves in a gulag or a, or a holocaust, uh, I have no idea if the majority would be able to Victor Frankl their way through it. I really have no idea. Um, yeah, me neither. So let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, firstly, just pick you up on something I think that you said was wrong. I don't think the people that can get into flow and Victor Frankl their way out of things were the only people that survived in concentration camps. And I don't think that the only people that died were those that, you know, gave up, as you put it. I don't think that's right. I think that's way too black and white. I think hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, were murdered despite their mindsets and despite what they hoped would happen. And I think there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who probably had given up but somehow did survive. So I don't I don't think it is black and white, and I just like wanted to pick you up on that because I totally disagree. Yeah, I've, in my head, I think that I had thought that I was eliminating a situation where someone was murdered in the sense that where there was a tiny path out of it I was assuming that that existed because if someone comes along and shoots you there's no you can't just positive thinking yeah Uh, but also, you know, I don't think that the people that survived the concentration camps and the gulags or Viktor Frankl skipped their way out at the end saying, gosh, what an interesting experience. What shall I do next? You know, how will I see the best today? They, that wasn't what happened. And um, uh, But I think, you know, the whole conversation highlights how important mental state is and control uh, that we have and can develop. You know, um, and I think for people with depression as well, if you if we go from the ultra extreme, you know, of um, being a prisoner, being trapped, being a a victim of a terrible regime and put into the most extremely awful situations and look at kind of depression as a as a trap or as a as a kind of a prison of the mind, you know, we'll often look at helping people to introduce tiny things like, oh, at the end of the day, you know, this might be a therapist's um one of the first things they suggest to a person once they've start started working with them and 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 it's understood that a person has depression is write down three things that you value each day or three things that you are going to look forward to or write down three things that you managed to do today or if you weren't able to do that three things that you would like to have done today you know just just by starting to introduce the idea that you can think about something and slowly work towards making it happen can be a way of introducing the idea of internal control um, and using your mind and your thoughts to 
develop techniques to make yourself feel better. So yeah, so even in most extreme, non-extreme situations, but like, you know, depression or anxiety, you can start to work with the mind to make life better. And I think that's what this whole conversation is about. And, and the cognitive distortions are things that get in the way of that, whether you have depression and anxiety, or whether these are just distortions to our thinking that cause us unwanted negative emotions. So what were those fallacies again? Just to remind me to see how... Uh, there is the the big the big purple veiny fallacy and there is <laughs> no there so the control fallacies we have no control over the lives our lives and are helpless victims of fate so that was the big uh, victor frankl conversation that we just had yeah and or that we are in complete control of ourselves and our surroundings giving us responsibility for the feelings of those around us those are the black and white thinking extremes that contrast in that situation so it's the idea that we either have absolute control or no control and that is something that can get in the way of all kinds of you know um possibilities really you know one the ability to solve problems the ability to think differently the ability to um change it optimize our situation as you put it even in extreme um untoward situations or the idea that we are responsible for everything so it's up to us to control how other people feel how other people think how successful we are how how everything works and and how how everything will eventually end up and that can cause real stress and real negativity and problems in our life especially if we think that we're responsible for how other people think and feel because Although obviously we can do things that cause other people harm, we can do things that distress other people, we are not ultimately responsible for others. So putting it that way is um, with the examples of extreme situations, uh, the the Holocaust and the gulags, if you put it, if you look at it from the other point of view, not from the perspective of someone who is in a prison camp but from the architects of that situation arising essentially following an ideology that people can be controlled should be controlled uh, people are not responsible for anything they simply operate within the frameworks of the rules that we impose upon them we the rule makers etc etc yeah exactly exactly yeah um all right, on to the next fallacy. Okay, the fallacy of fairness. Um and and definitely like this is you know, you can you can really see this in younger people, um especially children. Again, using psychology, positivepsychology.com's um uh definitions here. While we would probably prefer to operate in a world that is fair, the assumption of an inherently fair world is not based in reality and can easily foster negative feelings when we're faced with proof of life's unfairness. So a person who judges every experience by its perceived fairness has fallen for this fallacy and we will likely, sorry, and will likely feel anger, resentment, hopelessness when they inevitably encounter a situation that is not fair. Um, and I and I think what goes this as well uh, goes with this as well is the idea that a lot of a lot of people who 
haven't experienced unfairness and perhaps have had a sort of a lived in a privileged position aren't able to actually see that for other people the 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 life that they've lived has been full of harshness and unfairness and difficulty and they 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 can't relate and understand to that um and obviously when someone's in that position when something truly unfair happens to them it's much more difficult to deal with um so again it's about adversity i think this one it's about if we believe that the world should be fair when we face any kind of adverse circumstances we just aren't able to deal with it because that idea that the world is a fair place which it is not gets in the way of us actually processing and working out you know problem solving and working out different ways to deal with the unfairness or the difficulties in the world but then i think the people who try to do the problem solving and try to address unfairness in the world potentially haven't experienced much unfairness like you said so if unfairness struck them it would be a shock but more to the point possibly overlook ways in which the world is just unfair in uh, in ways that it's extremely difficult or impossible to change i think this is an important point and i've just made it terribly Yes. Let me give you the example of plastic surgery. So you might think that one of the most unfair things about life is that some people just pop out the vagina looking on fleek and live the rest of their lives in an effortlessly Instagrammable pose. They are forever beach body ready. And then other people get sort of like thrust out and this ugly lump of hideous cells and (laughs) disgusting festering biological matter plops its way into all the revolting juices and basically remains in that state of grotesqueness for the rest of its life and no one wants to come near it because it's so hideous and that is one of the most unfair things about life because neither of those babies chose their look and so good looking people just get advantages all the way through their life and 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 then there are whole layers to the unfairness because uh, collectively people decide what is good looking so for example uh, an example of racism would be the idea that asian men are not considered to be sexually attractive by westerners uh and that's sort of like a racial stereotype and there's no logical reason why for example white people black people brown people are inherently able to be sexually attractive but asian people are never able to be sexually attractive that makes no logical sense therefore it is a form of racism but no one um no one chooses that world when they're born so it's extremely unfair and uh let's just take race out of it for a minute because i i said i was going to use the example of plastic surgery let's say that you just have a face that is whatever society has decided is unattractive one thing you can do is have plastic surgery and fight a take on nature and fight it Another thing you can do is uh, look within 
and ask yourself, uh, what are these unfair criteria being imposed upon me from without? How can I articulate this unfairness? And how can I firstly accept myself the way I look and secondly promote myself as being beautiful in a world that simply doesn't recognise it? Before I continue with this monologue, do you want to react to any of that? <laughs> um uh, listen, you 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 haven't lost me, but I feel like the the uh, the the main points are meandering somewhat. Um, yeah, okay. So we're talking about fairness. Yeah, life is unfair. Some people are uh, considered beautiful. Some people are considered ugly. So true. So true. Um, and 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 like you say, you know, no one gets to choose who their parents is or where they're born or what nationality or race they're born into. So, you know, if you then look at the way people are treated differently because of those factors, that is inherently unfair. There's the proof that life is unfair from the the moment we are born. There is not an equity and an equality in how we are treated because of simply who we are. So, bam, we've fixed that one as long as everyone understands that, yeah? But can I just say, so the people who are trying to make the world a a, a perfectly fair place, I mean, yes, you could theoretically give plastic surgery and profoundly impactful therapy to all the people who are considered to be ugly. But I'm not sure how realistic that... I mean, the therapy, yes, and some people do have plastic surgery and they feel great after it. But, I mean, I I'm not sure the extent to which that is that unfairness is fixable. I wonder if beauty standards are an eternal problem or if it is something that... I'm sure there's someone who's devoting their life to fixing this problem. But I, d I don't know to the extent to which it can be fixed. Um, and so, therefore, when you're looking to create a world of fairness... It's possible that the more equality you create in easily fixable situations, the more you draw attention to unfairness. So, so let's say there's a, a huge problem of sexism in, um, I don't know, a, a particular field of work. Um, in fields of work where sexism is not an issue or, or much less of an issue I wonder the extent and, and obviously sexism and beauty standards are extremely overlapping but in the in the in the tiny little sliver of the Venn diagram where sexism and beauty standards are not overlapping you're left with the bright lights illuminating how harshly unfair the world is and no matter how you try and make everything, how hard you try and make everything fair, you will potentially end up with a situation where 90% of the world is fair because you've fought for justice, but you can't fight Mother Nature, for example. You can't fight the laws of physics. And therefore, the things that will potentially always be unfair just become strikingly obvious yeah I, I feel like your argument here is all about the fallacy of fairness there is no fairness the world is not fair fairness means equity and equality you know and that doesn't exist and you're saying that can't exist so you're arguing against 
you know, very clearly against the fairness fallacy. The idea, like, like they say, it is a fallacy. It is not true. There is not fairness in the world. You know, some things potentially, there is fairness in some areas, sometimes for some people, but then that's not true fairness, is it? But also, I don't think that what I'm saying should be used in bad faith to justify abuse, for example, or abuse of power, abuse of human rights. You shouldn't say, for example, um, let's reintroduce the criminality of homosexuality because James says life is unfair, so why would we legalise people's human rights? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anyone's going to use this for, you know, a new Mein Kampf basis or anything like that, James. So, um, So, okay, that's the fallacy of fairness. Anything else you want to say about that? Life is unfair... It's impossible to be perfectly fair. By all means, solve some easily solvable problems, but don't start punching people in the face just because you see unfairness in the world. That's my advice. That's Uncle James's advice for the kids. Oh, that's great, James. Say it again, just so we've really got it. (laughs) Go on, can you do it? How about just the conclusion? Don't punch anyone in the face as a direct consequence of seeing unfairness in the world. <laughs> Violence solves very little. OK, the fallacy of change. Uh, another fallacy distortion involves expecting other people to change if we pressure or encourage them to. This distortion is usually accompanied by a belief that our happiness and our success rests on other people, leading us to believe that forcing those around us to change is the only way to get what we want. And their example is a man who thinks, if I just encourage my wife to stop doing the things that irritate me, I can be a better husband and a happier person. The fallacy of change. And I think, I, I think loads of relationships... Um, loads of relationships rest on this idea this fallacy of change it's like a core part of they you know you meet maybe you have the romance you've got the lust you've got the excitement and then you start to get to know each other and as you get to know each other you you make this sort of list you know in your head this semi-conscious list in your head oh actually that is really annoying he's always on the computer or that is really annoying he spends most of his time on his phone or not talking to me or blimey he actually never cooks and never does you know dot 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 around the house okay well I'm gonna help over the course of our relationship I'm gonna help him work on these and eventually he is gonna be the perfect boyfriend because he's so pretty and her sex is so good and he's really funny and I love it you know and you you have this idea in the relationship that slowly over time that other person is going to get rid of, you know, like in the example that positivepsychology.com just gave, that other person's going to get rid of all of those things that are irritating or unfair or or not very helpful about that person. They're going to change and your lives together will become better rather than think, okay, we had a lovely romance, the sex was great and now we're getting to know each other this isn't going to work. This isn't enough for me. And this probably isn't enough for them. So let's talk about that. And let's, like Gwyneth Paltrow introduced to the world, let's consciously uncouple. Well, before you consciously uncouple, you present that to the other person and you see if you can um, adapt to each other 
should you want to like you you have to decide okay so this person is not just going to naturally change um i'm not they're not going to sleepwalk their way into my doctrine as i wonderfully present it because i'm great therefore as things stand at the moment it's unacceptable but rather than just walking away firstly articulate that successfully somehow and then secondly work out between you um, obviously, n- neither of us is just going to naturally become the way the other person wants. So do we want to work at this because the relationship is worth working for? Or do we not want that enough and therefore the relationship is over? Because I think too many people end relationships simply because the person they're with is not perfect and they think that the perfect person is out there and they just need to find them. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think that's two really good points. One, you know, communicate with your partner. The more you communicate with your partner about what your expectations are and your worries and your fears are about the relationship and them, the more likely it is that you might be able to find a balance or a negotiation or or some kind of um, um, agreement on things. Like, absolutely, I did kind of miss that one out in my example. And it's probably something that I'm incredibly guilty of. Fuck it, this isn't working. <laughs> let's, let's get rid of that one. Um, they're not perfect, fuck them. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of us also would be, a lot of others would also be very guilty of that. Um, but secondarily, and I've um, distracted myself there with my own hilarity. Um, you shouldn't just stay in an abusive relationship thinking, well, there must be a way of talking ourselves into a solution. There's also that. God, you're full of knowledge and wisdom today, James. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, so, so, so you know, there are other things to be done about it. But the idea that holding on to this belief that the other person will change or that the world will change around you, and, and people do it at work too, you know, they hold on for things to change rather than think, actually, this is not a place that I have got enough control or enough power or enough influence in order to make a better, happier, healthier workplace. And they stay in jobs that don't, you know, that, yeah, maybe pay the bills, but just cause them to be unhappy rather than, you know, actually give them some kind of meaning and some kind of feeling of success and agency and autonomy. Um, You know, so, so yeah, that, that fallacy of change is something that I think, you know, is really important to to understand and consider in important aspects of our life, like our, you know, intimate relationships, our friendships, um, uh, and our workplace. I just think that the I I agree with the fallacy of change. I'm not disagreeing with it, but I think that as a as an assumption, I would assume that usually it's the other way round. Usually, people think this job is no good for me. I don't have any meaningful feeling of pursuing this I need to get out this relationship is not good enough I need to get out of it and you and you know 10 years later you find you've quit 20 jobs and 30 sexual partners and you haven't found any meaning and either you come to the conclusion that the world is just rubbish and you're too good for it or you come to the conclusion actually Maybe I was just too quick to dismiss and to assume that that meaning and fulfilment should just land at my feet. And so I think this fallacy is maybe encouraging the kind of quitter to keep on quitting. 
No, I think I think it works. It depend. I suppose it depends on how strongly the control fallacy is there in the background. That you either have no control, as in you can't communicate, you're you're helpless, and you can't do anything about either your workplace or your relationship, um, or that you have complete control and yet you're not getting what you want. You know. Um, so with partially that control, with those control fallacies overlapping with the fallacy of change, you know, um, and expecting others to to be the to either do what you say or expecting others to just change automatically to make you happy, like those two can overlap and cause someone either to quit and just get away from a relationship they see as you know not good enough for them or leave a workplace that actually they could have had some you know real positive experiences with um, yeah I've definitely I've actually definitely seen that in work people giving up jobs before they've even really got into the nitty-gritty of how to do them properly thinking that the job and the workplace and the manager aren't giving them enough when actually it's them that isn't doing anything to really make that role a success I've seen that plenty of times um and but again, I think that is about you know the control fallacies and locus of control, and also being realistic and being able to listen to feedback and being able to communicate with others. Um, and listen, it fits really well with this. This is number fifteen on the list. It's called always being right. And I know that we, uh, everyone knows someone that genuinely believes that they are always right, or at least regularly says. And, and states how how they are always right or people shouldn't disagree with them because... Anyway, this is it. Always being right. Perfectionists and those struggling with imposter syndrome will recognise this distortion. It's the belief that we must always be right. For those struggling with this distortion, the idea that we could be wrong is absolutely unacceptable and we will fight to the metaphorical death to prove that we are right. I also think this always being right fits absolutely brilliantly with the cognitive bias section. It also fits really brilliantly with the conspiracy theories episode that we did. Um, the idea that it is absolutely unacceptable that we are wrong. Um, for an example, internet commenters... Commenters? Commenters? Is that a word? Yeah. commenters it, for some reason it just looks like gobbledygook to me the internet commenters <laughs> oh my god the internet commenters who spend hours arguing with each other over an opinion or political issue far beyond the point where reasonable individuals would conclude that they should agree to disagree are engaging in the always being right distortion to them it is not simply a matter of a difference of opinion opinion it is an intellectual battle that must be won at all costs. And I would like to add something to that. It's not just a case that um, it's a difference of opinion that should just be left at that. I think that one should learn a little bit from the other and be in balance and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. The very fact that the word opinion is there in that paragraph and, um, you know, people feeling very entitled to their opinions, but turning an opinion into fact, you know, and, and again... The cognitive bias um, episode, which we're obviously going to have to do another day. There's so much to talk about when you talk to a James about these issues. Um, cognitive bias is, a, is, a, is going to be really interesting and, and perhaps even um, shed some light on, on some of these. So perhaps we should pop to and fro back between, between uh, topics. But the, the idea that opinions, 
do not equal facts. And um, I saw a rather nice little kind of um, snippet on Imager recently, and it was talking about what research really is. You know, so and and I know that we 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 kind of like good at flogging people who give their opinions um, based on very little empirical evidence on you know facebook and and such but it was talking about for every paragraph in a clinical paper you know a clinical research paper for every paragraph there's probably got to be something like four references but for those four references to have been chosen and used you probably have to have read somewhere in the region of 50 to 100 other clinical papers and for those clinical papers to have been written about the topic they probably would have had to have read somewhere in the region of um, 200 to 500 clinical papers and at least scoured them, understood the references for them. And it's a process we call snowballing in clinical research. You you start with a paper that is kind of like a core to your topic. Let's say um, uh, cog- cognitive distortions. You know, you, you choose the number one paper on cognitive distortions. Oh, Aaron Beck wrote one in 1995. It's been referenced 10,000 times. Now, Aaron Beck would have written you know a really important groundbreaking piece so he's probably got 200 references in it the 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 snowball from that is you look at who has referenced Aaron T Beck's original article on cognitive distortions oh my god like thousands of people right so let's choose a couple of those and then you look at the references from those and each time you read the new paper and look at the references from the next clinical research paper on the topic of uh, cognitive distortions you're getting all the way up to 2021 and you can see this this snowball effect of references and reading and understanding and arguing and refining and so you've got this let's say 50 year history of clinical researchers standing on each other's shoulders, arguing both for and against, and slowly defining and refining the concept in this example of um, cognitive distortions. So the 2021 paper that was read and written and understood by specialists in the field who have read, in essence, the snowball of thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of clinical research, often there will be this core element of research that will have been referenced by everyone, the Aaron T. Beck paper. And obviously, if you read that, that's the start of it. And if you if you get to the year 2021 and you're reading the most up-to-date paper by uh, Brown and Hall on cognitive distortions... <laughs> You know, you're, you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. You are understanding that. But in clinical research, you still accept that there's the possibility of not being right. You know, you understand that's part of the process. You, you argue that what you've learned so far rules out certain things. You kind of try and disprove what it is that you're saying by giving evidence on both sides, in essence. And this comes back to the subject of is psychology a science? Because we've talked about what well, I mean. I say it comes back to. We've talked about is psychoanalysis a science, and we've and that the answer to that is a resounding no, even by psychoanalysts. Uh, everyone agrees pretty much that psychoanalysis is not a science because it's, it's technically not a science. It technically doesn't do what science does. Psychology, however, is very scientific in its methods of research. But how many crazy tribes in the middle of jungles on the other side of the world 
are represented in studies that are then referenced 200,000 times and therefore what aspect of um, human cognitive evolution has been overlooked by not including people who are totally outside of our culture? Why do I always think that you're halfway through a sentence? Yeah, no, abso- uh, absolutely, yes, that, yeah. Um, and, and I think for this, for this idea, the always being right idea, when we're talking about opinion, quite often people are arguing... I know I've been guilty of it. I, I, I can remember times when I have. When you're, you're in an argument or a debate with someone, you know, whether it's in the pub or at a dinner party or in work or with your relationship, and you're simply going on things that you've heard other people say, you know, rather than really scientific or fact-based or best available evidence, you go on things that you've heard. And often things that you've heard are interpretations of opinion, which is an interpretation of an opinion. You know, it's like the kind of, um, you know, slowly diluted truth, which sounds really good when it's put into a a meme or a short article or a newspaper article or or something online but it is is so distorted from you know or so diluted from the original truth and so removed that actually lots of people are arguing things especially online about a topic that they genuinely know nothing about but for some of the um some of the some of the cognitive biases which we'll look at next time they have believed it or come to believe it as truth. Uh, and it fits in with that always being right philosophy. Um, a guy that I like to read a lot of, Robert Anton Wilson, who wrote The um, uh, da, 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 the Cosmic Trigger series, a really great series of books, um, said this thing that I remember, and I read it in my early 20s, and I think I've held on to it ever since. Never believe anyone else's bullshit entirely. But remember, never believe your own. It's not about um, having an opinion and because you have that opinion, you need to prove and or, or disprove others. It's about the idea that you've got an opinion based on whatever it is that you've heard, read, seen, experienced, but also so of other people. So don't believe yourself as much as you don't believe other people. Allow there to be that uncertainty in everything. Unless, of course, it really matters. Like, you know... Um, by inference and experience and by other people telling you that fire burns so you're not going to put your hand in a fire right um you don't necessarily need to know why fire is going to burn you if you put your hand in it um but you don't argue just because you haven't put your hand in a fire you don't argue with other people to put their hands in fires if that makes sense um okay that's that one anything more to say about always being right i am good Okay, and the, the no, final... actually, I would that, I would just say that I think I've um, uh, I, it's definitely a flaw in me. Looking back, times when um, I basically just said things that I probably that I didn't think about at all, just because it was the tactic I'd chosen in order to be right, and I, it's like I've started so I'll finish kind of thing. Um, rather than saying, hold on a minute, I've got to a point where I'm no longer thinking critically, I'm just repeating what other people say and I'm sticking with it so as to sound consistent. Um, I I would just do that, I would stick with it and sound consistent. And um, so it's something that I have to learn to try and try and work out when I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about and I'm just repeating things that other people said 
uncritically. Yeah, and we are all guilty of that one. I mean, not. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of us who probably don't always believe we're right and can still argue things that we're not 100% sure of. And usually with a couple of moments to think or, you know, a break in a conversation or a break in an argument, you notice quite quickly, I'm talking utter shit. I don't even know why I'm arguing this crap. Um, and also there's people who can, you know, happily and comfortably not only acknowledge and recognise, um, but enjoy playing devil's advocate. Um, but this always being right theory, uh, um, idea, it's... Is problematic, and I think it probably causes fucking wars. So, <laughs> but let me let me also just give a little example. That no, 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 sorry, not an example. That's that sounds like I'm going to be t- talking for ages. Just a, a little snippet here. Let's say um, I've got we're discussing something, and I'm making a point, and you're you're basically not buying it. Uh, and no matter what the subject is, the 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 the, the thing that's gone wrong is that I have heard someone let's say in an interview who knows a lot about a subject sounding really intelligent and giving a conclusion that I think is um, just an excellent conclusion and I've remembered that and I've come into this situation and I've just presented that conclusion and you've asked me a question because you don't you, you don't know why someone would come to that conclusion and because all I've remembered is the conclusion and I don't know anything about the subject, like the person I listened to, all I, I mean, the, the honest answer for me to say is, I don't know, it's not really my opinion, it's someone else's and they sounded good. But I don't say that because it makes me sound stupid. <laughs> so in that situation, I continue to desperately try and um, think of logical reasons as to why I have this conclusion. But the honest answer is, I've heard someone else have this conclusion. I haven't thought about it enough for it to be my conclusion. I need to go away and think about it more and do some more research and get back to you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And the recognition that we are, and I've used the phrase already, standing on the shoulders of giants, there is nobody that knows all of the knowledge from the start of time to where we are now. There's a lot of people who have got a really good grasp of the core thread of a certain topic, which gives them enough knowledge to be quite certain about what they're talking about, especially in the, the, you know, the fields of science. Um, the fields of science, yeah. For some reason, I just imagined this sort of like green field and a yellow field and a little forest in the back, the the fields of science. But um, the idea that anyone, you know, in 2021 knows everything that's got to this point is just, it's just, it's just ludicrous. We, we don't, we aren't able to keep in mind all of that. Then I guess there may well be a handful of people who I, I myself haven't met who are able and capable of retaining all knowledge since the beginning of time, which relates to the one topic that they're making a conclusion on, you know, but, but like, it's, it's, it's very, it's very, very rare. You know, the fact that I have a friend who will argue with me, you know, over the kind of conspiracy side element of the, you know, human vaccines and what's really going on, who has absolutely no training since GCSE, um, you know, chemistry and biology in the sciences, but believes that because of their interpretation of the few, you know, snippets from papers and Facebook posts and uh, YouTube videos, believes that they have the same understanding of the the technicalities and the science of human vaccinations and... um, microbiology the the idea that this this person to me who's got the um 
the always being right sort of fallacy down to a T. He is on it. The fact that he 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 still believes that his interpretation of all of that information could be anywhere fucking near even like the basic scientists, you know, the lab assistants understanding of what's going on is just is just beyond me. Um but you're right, yeah, we, we can quite easily say from what I know, which is very, very limited, and from what I understand from people I've listened to and from the newspaper articles, which may well be biased or misinterpreted, this is my current conclusion and it is nowhere near the truth, and then say what it is that your opinion is, that would be the best way of doing things. The most interesting thing I think about the always being right theory is when we see someone else and you get the sense that they have to be right. They have to know better than you. They think that their opinion is higher and more elevated and more informed. When we see someone like that behaving like that, we would generally be more dismissive than if we see someone who says, actually, I don't know very much about this topic, but actually what I do know, and this is how I know it, is around kind of the background to it, you know. Um, So I don't know very much about the current vaccine that's going out for covid but what i do know is that if you look at the statistics which i have researched because i did my you know masters in it for two years if you look at the statistics in terms of the death rate and the um uh the transfer rate of all of these different illnesses over time you can see that as vaccines were introduced along with better hygiene along with better hospital care all of these illnesses came down i know that bit so my guess is that it would be better to believe and trust the vaccine nowadays than assume that a couple of things that you've read are going to keep you safer. You know, like we would trust someone who says that more than someone says, nope, I know what I'm talking about, the vaccine is going to kill you. Like, no one... Who listens to people like that? But it's more, it's more like the person who says the vaccine is going to kill you comes along and says, um, it makes it seem like they've done all the research themselves and then concludes it. And then yeah. the, the other, the person who then passes on the message by just slamming. Uh, sorry, yeah, I, 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 I'm conflating two things there. Uh, the person who just slams the message on the table and says the vaccine is going to kill you is basically the person who has just listened to someone else, probably come to that conclusion through totally insufficient research. And the only in bit of the insufficient research that they've done is maybe someone... It's, it's almost like the, 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 the snowballing effect you talked about earlier, but a snowballing of incompetence. So someone maybe did do some research that is worth considering, but then someone just takes that out of context and passes it on, and then someone just takes that person's conclusion and says it as, a, as if it's a fact, and then someone else just likes that person and repeats it. And then by that point, you've just you've got the you've got the duplication of an idea that has never been considered critically by any of the people repeating it. Yep, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, Snowballing of idiocy. Okay, so there is one more, but this is one I, I think we'll just mention very briefly and uh, before we wrap up. It's the, they call this the heaven's reward fallacy. It's a popular distortion and it's easy to see myriad examples of this fallacy playing out on big and small screens across the world. The heavens reward fallacy. It manifests manifests itself as a belief that one's struggles, one's suffering and one's hard work will result in a just reward. Um, 
So sometimes no matter how hard we work or how much we sacrifice, we're not going to achieve what we had hoped to achieve. Um, and it's a potentially damaging pattern of behaviour that can result in disappointment, frustration, anger and even depression when the expected reward never materialises. And also can keep you in you know, abusive relationships or in workplaces that actually are never going to value what you do because you believe that ultimately at the end of the day the suffering and the stress that you're going through will pay off. There you go. There's that one. Well, as an atheist i don't think i have much to say well i guess actually you know atheism is almost for you proof in the pudding that the heaven's reward is a fallacy right because at the end of a lifetime of suffering you're not going to get to fucking heaven because it doesn't exist <laughs> I'm not. I'm not as certain as you that it doesn't exist because hey. I wouldn't want to pretend that I'm right about something I couldn't possibly prove. No, I, I didn't say that. I was just giving you a dance for your belief as an atheist. <laughs> oh, okay. Aren't you an agnost then? Probably. Yeah, you're probably an agnost. So, so take your agnostic ways and let's wrap this episode up let's take my let's take the agnostic sheath and wrap the phallus with it and insert it into the archive of a fully penetrated subject in the vaults of the private practice studios uh, but of course, we still have one last thing to do, which is for a fourth time, desperately try and reveal the inner psychopath in Dan. And I think you're going to like it this week. Okay. It's relevant. Previously, okay. I didn't give any thought to, the, to matching the relevance of the law of power with the subject. This week, I actually uh, tried. Okay. Play on people's need to believe to create a cult-like following. This is law number 27 of Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. And he says, People have an overwhelming desire to believe in something. Become the focal point of such desire by offering them a cause, a new faith to follow. Keep your words vague but full of promise. Emphasize enthusiasm over rationality and clear thinking. Give your new disciples rituals to perform. Ask them to make sacrifices on your behalf. In the absence of organized religion and grand causes, your new belief system will bring you untold power. <laughs> so in other words, basically... Start a cult. Yeah, but rather than helping people with their cognitive distortions, you should just take advantage of them and manipulate them to your own advantage. Is that something that Dan Brown does? I think I can quite honestly say no. <laughs> but now that you've suggested the idea, James, perhaps uh, when I do go back to work eventually... I will start a cult. So when, if, if someone comes to you looking for guidance, rather than um, using your knowledge of cognitive distortions to help them work out where they've maybe gone a little bit down the irrational path and they need to be steered back with just a, an appropriate amount of rationality, not to the extent of Richard Dawkins, 
Um, instead of doing that, you'll be thinking silently to yourself, oh, you fool, you have walked into my trap. You, with all your problems and no knowledge of how to solve them, have come to me, the person who fully understands them and knows exactly how to manipulate them. Where shall I begin? <laughs> no, I, I think I can honestly say that that's not me. That's not some. <laughs> I mean, I might have to think about this one for the week and then next time update you. But, um, you know, my my gut feeling is that is not something that I do, that I, I, I work much better with uh, reality and, and truth than I do with um, an elevated cult-like um, leader fellowship, follow, follow, thing in me, Bob. But kind of as an idea for a reality TV show, if you took a therapist who's been treating someone for... Maybe not a very long time because um, you don't want the person to be on track to having a healthy mindset. You want to take some. You want to take someone who has divulged enough information that the therapist mm-hmm. knows a lot about them, but that person hasn't yet um, put in enough work uh, to start changing their mindset. And then you make a, an ethically dubious reality tv show where you pay the therapist to break all their codes of conduct and to just use all the information they have to manipulate the person into doing extreme things that are shocking or funny for the tv camera um you're basically (laughs) talking about darren brown now aren't you potentially yeah Um, yeah yeah, so let's come back to that idea uh and another day uh ethics and and (laughs) starting a cult but listen i i think i think you know we're at sort of um we're at that that point where we just wrap up and summarize okay um so thanks for offering me the the idea of starting a cult at work i really appreciate that um We've looked in the last few episodes at um, cognitive distortions and the 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 some of the overarching fallacies that kind of misguide us in a way into misunderstanding and not being able to make sense of what's going on around us. Now, all of these ideas that we talked about over the last few episodes are things that anyone and everyone can kind of fall into their trap. And it's something that can happen in a really minute way but also in quite a massive way that affects how we're living and how we're feeling and how we interact with others how we form relationships whether we succeed in uh, enjoying life whether we're able to engage in work and whether we can kind of like make the best of what's in front of us now all of these things are all of these ideas are ideas that may apply to you or may not and they may in the future they might have done in the past but it's just really a way of exploring the way that we think in order to make a you know happier healthier life having a look at them is something that i would recommend anyone does you know the the idea of like keeping a thoughts and feelings diary especially focusing around on some of the thoughts that cause us distress and having a look and seeing if any of the cognitive distortions might apply if you see loads of them, you know, popping up, you know, loads of black and white thinking, concrete thinking, discounting positive, um, focusing on certain concerns and, 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 and it's causing you distress, I, I do highly recommend that you speak to a CBT therapist and they're freely available on the NHS in the UK. Um, other healthcare systems do exist. 
Um, but that's pretty much it from me at Daniel P. Brown in the private practice podcast studio in London. And I would say that if you find yourself in any of the following uh, states of mind, number one, thinking that, uh, especially in the UK or America, woke culture gone, um, political correctness gone mad, has reached a fever pitch and this is a culture war and you need to uh, get your metaphorical weapon and fight because you need to protect a way of life that is going to disappear. Number two, the oligarchs of the world have stolen your dignity, ruined the planet uh, taken away the prospects of your children and the only true solution to that is Marxism. Number three, the vaccine is going to kill you and everyone you know and um, or potentially the other way around. Any of these kinds of thoughts, if they don't strike you as black and white thinking, then send a message to us at privatepracticepodcast.net in the contact us uh, contact us page and yep. i will put this to dan and see if he can explain himself better <laughs> fantastic it's goodbye from me preston and goodbye from, from morocco boys. preston from the ordinary boys 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 <laughs>